Please be seated. <clears throat> On a day when we are celebrating the extent and the variety of ministries in and of this community of faith, we are presented with scriptures about our behavior. St. Paul continues his section of ethical teaching on what love looks like in the community. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, he says. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And Matthew addresses the reality of post-baptismal sin and how the church can handle it. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out your fault and on and on. If that doesn't work, try this. And if that doesn't work, try this. They're both keen for us to understand that sin that we often might consider private and behavior we might consider of private concern is in fact a concern of the whole community. The foundation for determining our behavior, for Christian ethics, if you like, is often said to be the resurrection of Jesus and its consequence. That's certainly Paul's point of view. His ethical teachings are a consequence of what he said about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. But many have begun to see the resurrection as a means of recovering the vision that God had for Israel and recovering a vision of a community uh, brought into being in order not to create victims, a community in which our tendency to create victims is overcome. Let me try and say something about what I mean. When we want to be like others, or when we compare ourselves with others, in some way, we are setting ourselves up over against those others. And in that respect, we're not free. And it's a very, it's hardwired for most of us. We learn who we are by, by finding out who we're not and finding out who we are by seeing we want to be more like them, we want to be less like them. And that's a very small step to, to tribalism or to sectarianism, which is rife in our community and all over the world and sometimes perfectly harmless. And I mean, I was struck by watching the uh, conventions. First time in my life I've watched the political conventions. And I was struck by the tribalism. And it was all about energizing the base by being over against those other dreadful people. You know, and, and dreadful they were. And it was both, both sides sort of saying, yay team. And, and tribalism automatically starts to exclude. And starts, an exclusion is often a small step from actual violence. Uh, it, it, some of this, if it's a football team, it's probably not that important, but that sense of fellow feeling that we can get, that sense of what sometimes passes for community, that sense of we're all in it together, is often at the price of someone not being part of the group, at the price of exclusion. It probably doesn't matter to, if we get excited about Georgia or Georgia Tech unless it means we're not talking to our neighbor who supports the other team. You know, that probably isn't of huge consequence. But, but it can make a big difference in religion. And so if we start being, being sort of pleased that we're Episcopalians, you know, and not fundamentalists, and not Roman Catholics, or not Muslims, or not some other dreadful thing, and start, then, then we're very close to creating unity at the expense of an exclusion. Uh, before most of our services, the leaders of worship gather and we make sure everyone knows what they're doing, and, we say, and I say a prayer, and then I usually finish the prayer with a little informal uh, and ironic liturgy. I, I conclude by saying, okay, let's go to church. Yay, Episcopalians. And, uh, and 
people who haven't heard me do that before kind of look as if I'm a little odd, which is accurate. But the, the, my very first boss used to do that, and, and I, I did it. It's meant to be ironic, and I think people understand that at some gut level, that what we're doing, even though it seems like a pre-game huddle, is not going to a game. It's not our team. What we're doing in worship is fundamentally not a game. It is gathering around the table to remember what is of true and ultimate worth and to be shaped by the one who essentially addresses us as the, as the victim of our lives. A few years ago, we had a Holy Week preacher called James Allison, our, our friend, and he's clear that resurrection that leads to determining our behavior is God's graceful project in bringing into being a new community in which a new humanity can live free. And when we're dependent on exclusion for our identity, then we're not living free. And he talks about, he reminds us of the history of Israel. Israel was formed as a bunch of underclass with no national identity whatsoever, were brought out of bondage in Egypt and given the law in the wilderness, and the law was a graceful gift of identity. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And created a community where there was no sense of excluding others. In fact, the law of Israel particularly gives safeguards to those who are most vulnerable to exclusion. The sojourner and the stranger and the orphan and the widow and the poor are protected by Israel. They are meant to be the community whose identity is only, only drawn from a sense of their complete dependence for life on the grace of God and not their being over against other nations. And so the prophets start reminding them, you are behaving like other nations. You're starting to exclude. You're starting to act human, in fact. You're starting to be something other than this graceful sign of God's love in the midst of a broken world. And Ezekiel says, remember the word of the Lord. Remember the law. And Jesus stands in that, that tradition saying to Israel, you have started defining what is right and what is faithful by strict adherence to the law. And you know what? It's masking exclusion. And it's masking violence. And it's not going to stand because what stands is being recalled to the inutterable grace of God for life, for forgiveness, and for daily bread, and for the capacity to praise, uh, for a community, a new humanity, who can find through all of the barriers that the world sets up, all of the distinctions, all of the ways we divide ourselves one from another, the possibility of real human connection, real love, real right relationship. Now it's possible in this new world that even uh, victims can claim a sort of moral superiority. And in fact it's been said that one of the intractable things about the Middle East peace process is that every party is absolutely convinced that they are a victimized minority and, and therefore demanding that they should get what they want on the basis that they're victims. I'm not talking about our suddenly making victims more morally wonderful because they're doing exact victims doing exactly the same thing the rest of us are doing is defining themselves over against those dreadful people who victimize. Jesus is saying no, this new community is not a tribe and it's not a nation. It is simply, it's not even Christian 
or Jewish. It's simply humans finding that we can live free because we are defined only by God's love and only by God's grace. It is really hard to make a reality. And so the church had to start dealing with how do we deal with conflict, which is real. And they set up this marvelous thing. And I love the delicious irony that when all else has been tried, when all else has tried, when another member of the church sins against you, when such a person will not listen to you or to your friends or to the whole community, then you are to let, listen to this, let such a one be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, who was it that Jesus came for? And who was it that Jesus hung out with? And who was it that Jesus died in order to bring those people into the possibility of God's love? It seems that somehow in conflict we have to find ways to gather around that table together and allow that victim, that story of the one who is victimized by human exclusion par excellence on the cross, allow that story to begin to transform us. It's a long, long process of beginning to live free when we realize that really all that matters, really all that is true, is that we are loved by the one who created us, that we are loved by God. It's a hard truth to live. And so the church must be treated, in a sense, as the very ones for whom Jesus came. And it's once again the church or the new Israel or the sign of this new community, we who are under judgment for failing to be the new creation of grace that we were created to be. Now, traditionalists, uh, a traditional reading of this passage is, well, of course, everyone's welcome, and, and we, have, we must have norms, and we must have things that define us as a community, and that's right. And, and they go on and say, but, but it's, it's a sign of God's grace if you're living into the norms that we have set. And that might have merit, if only it didn't sound so like saying strict observance of the law is the way to be faithful. And therefore sounds like something Jesus, to which Jesus is saying, but that's a cover. That's a cover for your mechanisms of exclusion and your mechanisms of violence. And so think again what it means to treat someone as a tax collector and a Gentile. We say we want all of our ministries, from the life-transforming work of the covenant community, which incidentally is having an open house today, and if you have time after church, urge you to stop by and see how that facility has been renewed and actually provides a degree of dignity that maybe didn't before uh, for those who are resident there. From the covenant community to the Guild of the Good Shepherd, you maybe don't know what that is. Five years, a group of people have been uh, giving the gift of hospitality to bereaved, uh, to those who mourn at the time of funerals here. And we say that those ministries and all of the other hundreds of ministries that were represented in those banners are relationship-based. Or they're striving for right relationship. And the behavior that we want from ourselves and one another is the behavior that is not based on exclusion and not based on manipulation and not based on fear and not based on being over against someone else and not based on being lady bountiful or even fellow feeling with the victims, but is based somehow on the possibility that through all of the things that divide us, we can have that moment of real human connection that moment of God-given love, that moment where we know we are free because it's the only thing that matters right there 
in the present moment of connection. The ministries we celebrate are at the best ones in which we find that in service there is true freedom and in giving we receive. And humanity, ours and the others, is really possible. So as I draw to a close, let me leave you with a, a true story that embodies so much of what I've been trying to say here. I have a friend, he was formerly a parishioner, now lives out of state, who was involved in refugee ministries. And he had been befriending a refugee family. And one day, uh, he and probably some of you gathered and rented a truck and went and picked up furniture that had been donated. The family had been here for some time in a really cruddy place and they were moving to a nice new apartment. Uh, they'd saved enough money for the deposit and all this. And they were furnishing the apartment with things that had been donated. And my friend was, along with many of you, helping to furnish that apartment along with the family. And my friend came back and said, it was fantastic. What a day. The joy, the sheer pleasure they took on moving into this this new place and being surrounded by friends who were helping them and caring for them and the sense that this was perhaps a community, a new life after all they'd been through. And he said, Jeffrey, you know what? It was so good. We need to, we, we could, there's enough furniture. We could get a warehouse. We could fill it with furniture. We could make sure every refugee in Atlanta has furniture. And I said, you know, that's a lovely vision and there's nothing wrong with it. And it may be that that energy could come about to create it, but that's not the heart of what we do. What we do is friendship-based. You had a fantastic experience because you had begun to make a friend. And in that friendship and out of relationship, gifts flow. Gifts flow easily and gracefully and genuinely when love is real. And the furniture just happened because you were making friends. And it was that friendship that allowed the whole experience. And it's that that we're after, that transcends all of the boundaries of race and creed and color and, and, and all of the other things that would, would divide us. And so, and, and so our relationship-based ministries, we try and keep that in the forefront of what we do. And then we come back around this table. And we come back around this table and hear the story of victimization and exclusion and separation and degradation, which is at one level the story of the cross, the story of one who in friendship died for our sin and opened the possibility of a better way, not only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but even to those accounted tax collectors and Gentiles, even to you and even to me. And so let us, in a time of silence for prayer, once again respond to the gospel. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, it is love that is the fulfilling of the law. Let us pray.